listening to the Bible 126 show. Father, we just praise you that once again we have the privilege of gathering together in the name of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for this opportunity. For we are indeed aware that there are no accidents in your kingdom, no coincidences, and that we're all here at this moment by divine appointment to hear your word. And we would pray, Father, that you'd open our hearts and minds to that which you have here for us, and that you would instill in us through the ministry of your Holy Spirit that response which you would have of us to your word and to your great and precious promises. And, and help us, Father, in your instruction that none of these lessons be wasted. For we ask all these things that we might grow in grace in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, and that in that growth we might be more pleasing in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, we're in the book of Numbers. Um, and last time we finished chapter 14, and we are entering in the darkest period, the darkest period of the wilderness wanderings. An interesting observation, it took about probably 40 hours to get Israel out of Egypt in what we call the Passover. It took about 40 hours to get Israel out of Egypt. And now we're going to learn it took about 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. And, you know, we, we look at the, the, this dismal, dismal spectacle of their unbelief and grumbling and, and lack of faith. And yet, um, we should uh, judge them softly, carefully. Because we have the ben- we are the beneficiaries of far greater revelation than they were. And we're called to do much less. And we stumble no less. So uh, there's much here that we could indeed um, take to heart. Strange period. We're, we, the, the book of Numbers has gone to some de- in these last 14 chapters, some detail. We're going to discover that 38 years are going to be passed over with just a few mentions. In the next several chapters, there's some ordinances, there's a few incidents that we will, in fact, take note of, but that 38 years is uh, surprisingly little said, because it's not a year of progress. It's not 38 years of progress, it's 38 years of dying. The main accomplishment in those 38 years was to pass over the generation that failed to step up and take advantage of what God had laid before them. We need to be very careful. You know, you and I are victims of what I call the Sunday school Jesus. The Jesus we learned about as little kids in coloring books and whatever. Um, we also are victims of a concept that intellectually we may have outgrown, but not of the gut. And that is the God of the Old Testament versus the God of the New. We find that idea uh, lying behind a lot of attitudes somehow that the God of the Old Testament is this severe, punishing, rigid uh, God, uh, and the God of the New Testament is this graceful, forgiving... I mean, we have those bizarre ideas. We need to recognize two things, several things. God has not changed. The God of yesterday is the same now and forever. So even though the fullness of his revelation of himself to us is in the person of Jesus Christ. That's indeed paramount. But yet as we go through the Old Testament and we find God dealing with situations, we should recognize that in those situations are lessons not just for Israel but for ourselves. 
We're going to find all kinds of strange little ordinances and things that obviously had their primary application in the context that they were given there. However, they teach us a lot about God. We're going to discover that there is no room for human arbitrariness or self-willed worship in God's plans. He's, he's very specific as to how he is to be dealt with. So, as we see his frustration and impatience, if you will, uh, I hate to use that word, that's not probably quite the right word, but certainly, I guess the word frustration comes close, with the nation Israel, um, where he actually ends up stepping back and saying, for 38 years, you're going to stay put until the next generation's ready and we'll take them into the promised land. Those are heavy words. And uh, that should give us, should, we should recognize that God is not some kind of um, broad, intangible force. He's a person with feelings, with issues, with purposes, with plans. And uh, we can be part of those plans or we can position ourselves and attempt to frustrate those plans. But they're dynamic. He interacts with us. He interacts with, interacted with these people, albeit maybe some of the examples I'm springboarding from here are a little grisly uh, in terms of dismissing a whole generation. We should recognize that this is the God with whom we have to do. We need to understand all that we can about him. But in any case, we closed last time where he, uh, through Moses, took their own words. Uh, you wanted to perish, you will. You're worried about your kids, they're going to go forward. I mean, he just took their very words and, and made it their judgment. And um, the... Uh, uh, so no need to recount that more than that. A couple of things, though, you should recognize. The word Kadesh, Kadesh Barnea, the word is essentially means the sanctuary. And we know it by its place name, by which it's known to them. Its original name may have been something else. One reason it may have been named the sanctuary is because for 38 years they may not have been wandering. That comes as a surprise, because mostly as we study this period of Israel's history, we correctly have this visualization that the tabernacle moved, they, they had an order of march, and they moved from place to place by the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And that's certainly true early, and it's certainly true later, but during this 38 years, some scholars make the case they may not have wandered at all. There's some evidence that for this 38 years, hey, it's a parenthesis, time out, they're on the penalty box. The tabernacle itself may very well have based itself for 38 years at Kadesh. They're later going to pick up and move and through Edom and Moab and come, come across the Jordan. But the point is, for this period of time, all kinds of insights may be useful. First of all, let's start with the important things. God did not abandon his people. He's upset. He's pronounced judgment, but he continues to supply their need. Not only food, but also raiment and shoes. Okay? And you can find that in Deuteronomy 8 and 29. Deuteronomy deals with that in more detail. He also continued to communicate with his people through Moses. So that didn't change. Its effectiveness may have been altered by the uh, other side of the coin. It's uh, clear that the children of Israel fell apart. First of all, they failed to observe, just to give you one example, the rite of circumcision. 
Now that's amazing to the extent you've studied the rite of circumcision as a son of Abraham, not just Jewish, but Ishmael also. That was a basic link to the covenant. You can't imagine uh, them not doing that, but they did. They failed to... Uh, how do I say... Why do I say that? Because in Joshua chapter 5, later on, when Joshua assumes leadership from Moses and he leads them across the Jordan, what's the first thing he does? He's a military commander in hostile territory. It's the first thing he does. He happens to incapacitate all the males because they all got circumcised. Okay? At Gilgal and all that. Joshua, in the early chapters of Joshua, deals with that. But the insight there that's uh, worth uh, uh, recognizing is that that means they were uncircumcised. Children of Israel were uncircumcised. During that 38 years... Clearly, the parents who had already been circumcised, they're taking care of it. The kids that were brought up, this generation that's to go into the promised land, were an uncircumcised group. That was one of Joshua's tasks was to get them circumcised. That also implies, we're not certain, it also implies that the observance of Passover was abandoned for 38 years. That's frankly, from a human standpoint, not surprising. From their point of view, it was primarily a memorial. A memorial of what? Of the deliverance of Egypt. That had to have a certain irony to those parents to celebrate our deliverance from Egypt when, hey guys, we blew it and so we're, we're uh, quarantined here, we're, we're, we're uh, sequestered in the wilderness till we die. They're sitting around waiting to die. To the extent they recognize what God said, they're marking off the calendar. In something less than 40 years, we're all going to die, gang. It's hard to get excited about a rite of memorialship looking back. So the, the uh, Passover appears, uh, we believe. Uh, also, what's also clear is during this period, the laws of God were generally disobeyed. The Sabbaths were profaned. They also uh, indulged in idolatrous practices. We have references to the firstborn going through the fire of Moloch. Not widespread, but there obviously were some incidents of it. We find... Uh, concerns about this in several places, Ezekiel 20 and Amos 5. You may from, recall from our starting Ezekiel, but just to refresh your memory, turn to Ezekiel 20. Now, Ezekiel is speak, God is speaking through Ezekiel uh, uh, and, and, and uh, vindicating his dealings with Israel. So there's much that we could learn from chapter 20, but we'll pick it up about verse 10. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 10. God speaking through Ezekiel saying, Wherefore I caused them to go forth out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. And I gave them my statutes and showed them mine ordinances, which if a man do, he shall even live in them. Moreover also I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifieth them. But... Here's one of those dismal words, but, like the word nevertheless. That's always a, a grim connective. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They walked not in my statutes, and they despised mine ordinances, which if a man do, he shall live in them. In my Sabbaths they greatly polluted. Then I said I would pour out my fury upon them in the wilderness to consume them, but I wrought for my name's sake that it should not be polluted before the nations in whose sight I brought them out. Notice again here God's presentation of his commitments to Israel 
isn't because of Israel. It's because the nations that saw him, the, the, the nations in general are going to see whether he keeps his promises. And that will be the basis by which he's going to, later on in Ezekiel, bring them back into the land as he is today. Not for Israel's sake, but uh, to, to, uh, 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 because of his namesake before the nations. Verse 15, Yet also I lifted up mine hand unto them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land which I had given them flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands. Interesting word, all lands. And it also shows up in verse 6 there, the glory of all lands. Not just Israel. It's a broader issue. Even in the Old Testament we see that God's plan, God's purpose, God's focus is much broader than just uh, Israel itself. And... Uh, and he goes on and, uh, through about verse 26 of the same kind of thing. But the whole idea demonstrates the, uh, the, 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 the uh, dissolution. And Amos 5 also deals with God's indictment of their behavior. Uh, Amos 5, verses 25 and 26, for those of you for your notes. Uh, so so uh, that's uh, the tragedy of, uh, of this period, 38 years. Now, we're not going to have a lot of detail of the 38 years. We're going to hear a few things that happened. Uh, that are uh, significant, not only because they're significant in their own right, but they're also referred to many times elsewhere in the Scripture. Therefore, they're important for us to have a, 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 a grasp of. Um, okay, let's we're at chapter 15, verse 1. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When ye come into the land of your habitations, which I give unto you, and will make an offering, and so forth. First step that's interesting is that God's faithfulness is much greater than man's failures. God's faithfulness is much greater than our failures. Here on the very heels of this indictment where they have just blown it, what's his first words? Giving them instructions. There's some rules we're going to run into here when they enter the promised land. So despite the fact that this generation is under indictment, he is focusing on the fact that he is going to keep his promises, that there is a hope for the children, and so forth. Speak unto the children of Israel and say to them, When, not if, when, ye are come into the land of your habitations, which I give unto you, and will make an offering by fire unto the Lord, a burnt offering, or a sacrifice in performing a vow, or in a free will offering, or in your solemn feasts, to make a sweet savor unto the Lord of the herd of, or of, of the flock. Then shall he who offereth his offering unto the Lord bring a meal offering of a tenth part of flour mixed with a fourth part of a hin of oil and a fourth part of a hin of oil. A wine for a drink offering shalt thou prepare for the burnt offering or sacrifice for one lamb or for a ram. Thou shalt prepare for a meal offering two tenths of flour uh, mixed with a third part of a hin of oil and for a drink offering thou shalt offer a third part of a hin of wine for a sweet savor unto the Lord. And when thou preparest a bullock for a burnt offering or for a sacrifice in performing a vow or peace offerings unto the Lord, then shall he bring with a bullock a meal offering of three-tenth parts of flour mixed with a half a hin of oil. And thou shalt bring for a drink offering half a hin of wine or for an offering made by fire uh, of a sweet savor unto the Lord. Thus shall it be done for one bullock or for one ram or for a lamb or a kid. According to the number that ye shall prepare, so shall ye do every one according to their number. All who are born of the country shall do these things after his manner, in offering an offering made by fire or a sweet savor unto the Lord. Now, we're not going to take the time. It's not appropriate, I think, for this study to go 
into the whole study of the various offerings and their types and purposes. Uh, but to, incidentally, to do that, you have to tie together a lot of different scripture. Leviticus, of course, passage in Deuteronomy, as well as some of these uh, specific passages and numbers. And uh, that is a fruitful study, but it needs to be really done in total and rather than take it in pieces. But the main thing that strikes me here as we go through, here in the middle of all this is some very detailed instruction about the offerings they will give when? When they're in the land. Little subtle additions to things that, that uh, uh, are the proper way to prepare these various offerings. Uh, going on, verse 14. You get to what's called the law of the stranger. And if a stranger sojourn with you, or whosoever be among you in your generations, and will offer an offering made by fire, or a sweet savor unto the Lord, as ye do, uh, so shall, so he shall do. One ordinance shall be both for you of the congregation, and also for the stranger who sojourneth with you, an ordinance forever in your generations. As ye are, so, sh uh, so shall the sojourner be before the Lord. One law and one ordinance shall be for you and for the stranger who sojourneth with you. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When ye come into the land which I bring you, here again he's holding, it's, it's, yes, it's a rule, but it's a rule that's built around uh, a promise. Um, then it shall be that, verse 19, When ye eat of the bread of the land, ye shall offer up a heave offering unto the Lord, ye shall offer up a cake of the first of your dough for a heave offering as ye do the heave offering of the thrashing floor, so shall ye lift it high. Of the first of your dough ye shall give unto the Lord a heave offering in your generations. And if ye have erred and not observed, now here's another, let's change the subject, we're not talking, going to talk about sins of omission and sins of uh, presumption. These are not overt, deliberate rebellion, but things of oversight or error or omission. He's going to deal with that. Okay? Uh, and if ye have erred and not observed all these commandments, which the Lord hath spoken unto Moses, even all that the Lord hath commanded you by the hand of Moses, from the day that the Lord commanded Moses, and henceforth, among all your generations, then it shall be, if anything be committed by ignorance, without the knowledge of the congregation that all the congregation shall offer one young bullock of a burnt offering for a sweet savor unto the Lord with his meal offering and his drink offering according to the ordinance, uh, the one kid of the goats uh, for a sin offering. The priest shall make an atonement for all the congregation of the children of Israel and it shall be forgiven them for it is ignorance and they shall bring their offering, a sacrifice made by fire unto the Lord and their sin offering before the Lord for their ignorance and it shall be forgiven all the congregation of the children of Israel and the stranger who sojourneth among them seeing all the people were in ignorance. And if any soul sin through ignorance then he shall bring a she-goat of the first year for a sin offering then the priest shall make an atonement for the soul that sinneth ignorantly when he sinneth by ignorance before the Lord to make an atonement for him, and it shall be forgiven him. What if that applies to those 26 scholars in the Bible seminar that didn't know that Christ is coming back? That's certainly, I don't know if that's presumption or ignorance, maybe a little of both. But what's really coming through here, though, is that uh, the setting aside the mechanics by which they're instructed to take these things seriously, the main issue is that sins of ignorance or sins of presumption are, in fact, a form of reproach by the person against God himself. To be ignorant of or, and or to act presumptuously is, in fact, uh, a, a sin of reproach, in effect, to, the, to God the Father. And that's part of what 
is being dealt with here. Verse 29, And you shall have one law for him who sinneth through ignorance, both for him who is born among the children of Israel and for the stranger who sojourneth among them. But the soul that doeth anything presumptuously, whether he is born in the land or a sojourner, the same reproach, reproacheth the Lord, and that soul shall be cut off from among his people, because he hath despised the word of the Lord and hath broken his uh, commandment, that soul shall be utterly cut off, his iniquity shall be upon him. So obviously the sin of presumption is worse than ignorance. I didn't mean to put them in the same category. I just meant they're both being dealt with in this passage. But, um, um, okay. And while, the, verse 32, And while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man who gathered sticks upon the Sabbath day. And they who found him gathering sticks brought him unto Moses and Aaron and unto all the congregation. And they put him in prison, because it was not declared what should be done to him. The Lord said unto Moses, The man shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him with stones, and he died, as the Lord commanded Moses. Wow. Would that, uh, would that, uh, uh, that sure hurt the traffic on the golf courses if we apply that? Yeah. Well, you know, um, does that strike you as a little severe? Yeah, you bet. That's severe. Um, what's the point? What's God trying to do? Why does he, it's a penalty of death for gathering some sticks on the Sabbath day? Gives you an insight. God takes himself seriously. And he has given them instructions. And uh, uh, there's no ambiguity about the requirement. And uh, he and they specifically said, hey, what do we do about it? And he told them, put him to death. And uh, that's his way, of getting, er, his way of getting Israel's attention. He is serious about his instructions. As I've said before, the Ten Commandments are not suggestions. They're his laws. And... Um, now, does that now I, I take for granted that does not imply if somebody misses church Sunday that he's guilty to be put to death. Don't carry this, apply this inappropriately. I don't think I have to get into too much of that. Um, okay, the last a few verses here uh, mention something else that's kind of interesting. The Lord said and spoke unto Moses, saying, "Speak unto the children of Israel, and bid them that they make them fringes." or tassels or anyway hem-oriented hem ornamentation there's some discussion as to what the Hebrew word actually means but whether fringes or tassels I won't get into that here tonight um, fringes on the borders of their garments throughout their generations that they may put upon the fringe of the borders a cord of blue and there's some uh, technicalities here of, of the actual uh, words um, of these, uh, I thought I'd jotted down some background, but I guess I didn't, that's fine. We find this here, by the way, also in Deuteronomy 22.12, uh, 12, um, and it, it, we actually understand there, there's actually four in number, and they're typically a, uh, a, what you and I would probably visualize more like a tassel than a fringe, and, a, and, the, and they included a cord of blue, and shall be unto you for a fringe, that ye may look upon it, and remember all the commandments of the Lord, and do them that ye seek not after your own heart and your own eyes, after which ye, uh, ye used to play the harlot, that is, you know, whoring after false gods, 
that ye may remember and do all my commandments and be holy unto your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. And this identity on the hem of their garment or the fringe of their garment uh, gives rise to another insight that you and I may miss. You know, in our culture, there's more of a tendency to put rank on a sleeve like the Navy. They have so many stripes on the sleeve. Or you see airline pilots, they have typically stripes on a sleeve representing their uh, various ranks of seniority. Uh, we have uh, in the military, in, uh, they typically have badges on the shoulders or on the, on the collar. We use a different location on the garment to be the relevant place to put badge of, of office on. Uh, in, in this culture, one's rank or standing socially culturally, politically, whatever, was on the hem of their garment. By, if you were uh, skilled and knowledgeable in that era, you could see someone in a crowd and determine their position in that society by their clothing. Not only its quality and colors and things, but by the fringe, or, the, or, the, or rather the hem. We find that uh, that surfaces subtly in a number of places in the Scripture. You recall when David was fleeing Saul, and he found when Saul was asleep, David slipped in and cut off the hem of his garment. Why the hem? Because it was handy? No, because that was his way of, of, of making a point. That was his place of, 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 um, of uh, that was his uh, badge of office, if you will. And uh, uh, we also find uh, in several places in Scripture, the other case that, that surfaces in the uh, the uh, incident that occurs with the woman with the issue of blood 12 years who goes to the crowd, if I can but touch the hem of his garment. It isn't that just the last flowing part, it's the, that's the badge, that's his, his authority. And uh, 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 that's the, so the, the, the hem is uh, um, derives in part from uh, this passage here. We find it in Matthew 9 and 14, there's references to it, Mark 6 and Luke 8 are all places where the hem or the, the fringe is, is uh, relevant. Uh, in Matthew 23, we find the Pharisees um, covet extra-long tassels. That gives them more power, you see. That's, that's, uh, you've heard power ties and, you know, the Gordon Gecko suspenders. Well, in, in this case, it's the, it's the, it's the uh, Pharisees who are after tassels, see. So uh, the, uh, the investment bankers had nothing on, on, on the Pharisees of the past. Okay. Okay, that gets us through chapter 15, a group of ordinances. Um, we won't take the time to badger the details of the ordinances. It's just interesting that God is providing ordinances. And it's also in a strange place that God here, as they are in their, in their uh, undertaking this dark period of their history, he gives them instructions, detailed instructions of what is to be observed when they indu, uh, indeed do enter the land. Chapter 16. And here we have an episode that we studied some time ago in our Jude study, then called the Gainsaying of Korah, if you recall. And uh, chapter 16 and chapter 18 sort of go together. Well, we'll see as that, that goes here. But now chapter 16, verse 1. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. Now, there's a couple of translational subtleties here that some manuscripts suggest 
uh, have, have the words slightly different that you may give us an insight. First of all, there's three key ringleaders we're going to be dealing with here. Korah, who's the number one guy, and two others, a, a Dathan and Abiram. Now, um, Korah is a, uh, as, you, as you see from the genealogy here, is a Levite. Not only the sons of Levi, but of the family of the Kohathites. And if you recall, the Kohathites were the most privileged of the three families. Bear in mind now, let's back up and refresh our memory here, because we're not Jewish. We need to get a little Jewish tonight, okay? If you are of the tribe of Levi, then you had another division. If you are of the family of Aaron, you were a priest. If you're outside the family of Aaron, you were in one of three families, the Kohathites and these other two, if you recall. So there's a distinction between Levites and priests. To be a priest, you were a Levite, but more specifically, you were of the family. It was a family arrangement of the family of Aaron. So uh, now, uh, it's interesting that Korah is a Levite, but of the most privileged family. The Kohathites of, of the three, the Gershonites, the Merites, they all had their duties, you recall, when we studied that a few chapters ago? The Kohathites really had the neat thing to do. If you weren't going to be a priest, the next best thing you could be would be a Kohathite because you, you dealt with, you carried, you were responsible for the furniture, as we might call it, of the tabernacle, the inner, the, the inner things. <clears throat> now, um, what, what Korah is going to do is undertake an attack on the Aaronic priesthood. He's jealous. You know, why should Aaron's family have all the fun? You know, after all. You know, we're Levites too, right? So he's going to, in effect, be accountable for having organized a rebellion of some consequence because he's going to have two co-ringleaders here we'll talk about in a minute and 250 leaders, not just guys, petition signers or something, leaders that join. This is, a, this is not just a, another situation with Miriam and Aaron, you know, grumbling, this is a big deal. Now, the other two guys, Dathan, Dathan and Abiram, are Reubenites. They're not nothing to do with Levi. They're Reubenites. You see, they, they, they are sons of Eliab and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben. In other words, they're of the tribe of Reuben. Now, I know you all remember vividly the little layout we had with the tabernacle and all the things. And if you recall, around the tabernacle there were the three families. The family on the south side of the tabernacle were the Kohathites. As you go the next ring out, if you recall, we had the 12 tribes, remember? Three to the north, south, east, west. The three tribes to the south were in the camp of Reuben. So I just mentioned that as you stand back. It's sort of, geographically speaking, isn't surprising that the Kohathites and the Reubenites are murmuring in their tents because they're together over there, right? So, just to, may have nothing to do with anything, but it's a, just an observation. Um, so, uh, we, have the, uh, we have Korah of the Korthites, most privileged. Um, and what he's going to try to do, he's going to organize the politics here to try to get rid of the distinction between the Levites and the priests. Okay? Now, Dathan and Abiram are another couple of troublemakers. Abiram, by the way, is an alternate form of Abraham. Which means, which can mean, my father is exalted. And uh, in Abraham's case, that's great because we know who his father was, right? In Byram, it's a little more confusing. Now, so 
something else you should recognize is of the 12 tribes, who was born first? Reuben. So on, the, on that basis, you'd say that, gee, Reuben has at least a pretension to the rights of the firstborn. And um, there's a grisly story in Genesis 35 that, well, we could just pop back there just to give Reuben his due. We'll teach Reuben to mess around. I think it's Genesis 35. Hmm. I should have checked. <laughs> Well, let me sneak at it another way. All right. Oh, I'm in the wrong chapter. There we go. Okay. Okay, yes, I was in cha uh, Genesis chapter 35. Okay. And we'll pick up about verse um, 21. And Israel, that is Jacob, journeyed and spread his tent beyond the tower of Edar. And it came to pass when Israel dwelt in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And Israel heard it, now the sons of Jacob were twelve, and it goes on. Now that's the incident. When you get to Genesis 49, which you turn with me to Genesis 49, this is where Jacob, or Israel, at the end is prophesying over, the 12, over his twelve sons. Genesis 49, Jacob called his sons and gathered yourselves together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Verse 2, gather yourselves together and hear ye sons of Jacob and hearken unto Israel your father. And he starts off with Reuben, the firstborn, right? Reuben, thou art my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Sounds great. That was his potential. However, verse 4, the second part of that, he goes on to talk about Reuben, unstable as water. Thou shalt not excel, because thou wentest up to thy father's bed. Thy de thy, then defilest thou it, he went up to my couch. And then he goes on and talks about the other, the other uh, uh, sons. He gets to verse 8 and he talks about Judah. Judah Thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. The word Judah means praise. And he goes on and talks about Judah, a very important passage, prophetically. And on it goes. So, um, okay. Um, so Reuben is disinherited of his rights of being the firstborn because of the sin of Reuben. And that the, the rights, actually in a sense, get distributed several ways. Judah has the right of rulership, but the rights of the firstborn really devolve on Joseph. The double portion in his, his sons get adopted by Jacob as his, really his, what you and I would call grandsons. They don't have a word for that, but we would call them grandsons. They were adopted by Jacob as a son, so Ephraim and Manasseh become tribes. Collectively the tribe of Joseph, but a double portion and uh, so on. We've, we've discussed that. But you can understand, I think, how a Reubenite feels cheated you know, our tribe was the, has the rights of the firstborn. And Dathan and Byron prey upon that. And um, what they want to do, they really couldn't care less about Aaron. But they're willing to attack Moses because without, as long as Moses is strong, Aaron's in power. So they're part of this rebellion with a different agenda. It really doesn't matter, but just to get an understand, they probably 
couldn't care less about the priesthood. Aaron or Levites or whatever, that's not their issue. They really want to unseat Moses because they're going to, you know, it's really a bid for power, okay? So the, this group um, 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 are, are, are the conspirators. Now, uh, we won't take the time uh, tonight to go through some of the other references. It's interesting, this whole issue is referred to many times in the Scripture, many different places. Uh, Psalm 106, and verses 17 and 18, draws this distinction between Datham and Abiram, who later on are going to be buried alive, as opposed to their followers who are destroyed by fire. So there's a distinction made. I'm not sure I'm too impressed with the distinction. I mean, whether you're swallowed up by the earth or destroyed by fire seems to be sort of final either way. But, <laughs> but uh, the psalmist makes it portrayal. And also, uh, uh, later on, um, we're going to discover in, uh, um, that the daughters of Zelophehad, which we're going to take up a little later in Numbers, they're the five daughters that had no man to inherit, and so Moses makes a special deal that they can inherit, right? Very important. Not just an incident. Scholars generally give credit to Mr. Schofield, the famous Schofield Bible, for having perceived first the significance of the daughters of Zelophehad vis-a-vis Christ's claims to the throne of David. We'll get to that then. I just throw that out so you sure to attend when we take the daughters of Zelophehad. But interesting, uh, uh, they don't, uh, when, when they speak, they don't speak, they speak of Korah, but they don't mention Dathan and Byram. So there's a hierarchy. Da- uh, Korah is the, is the key player here. Well, let's see, we just got to verse 1. Let's keep moving here a little bit. Verse 2, And they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, certain, 250 princes. This isn't 250, you know, um, casual people. These are princes of, his, of, the, of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. In other words, these are the heavies. They succeeded in gathering 250 um, um, princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation. Verse 3, And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, and said unto them, Ye take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore then lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. Now, the first thing this gang does is they pick up a nifty slogan. A nifty slogan. And this is where I have to, I'm sure I've shared too often my favorite little story, but I'm going to work it in here anyway, so you're going to stuck with <laughs> about the guy that bought the horse. Um, uh, this guy was traveling in uh, the uh, western Pennsylvania region, which of course is peopled by the Amish and Quakers and others that are, uh, among other things, uh, biblically oriented, but also horse fanciers. And he bought this magnificent animal and negotiated the deal with the farmer. And just as they were completing the transaction and trailering the horse, the farmer pointed out to the, the buyer, this young man who bought the horse, that uh, they raised the horses here with a little different set of commands. That uh, they, uh, when they want, when the horse increases a gate, you know, from a you know, walk to a trot to whatever, uh, you just say praise the Lord, and it would increase gate. And he says, yes, I can relate to that. That's no problem. So he pays the guy and trailers the horse, and he's driving down these these byways in Pennsylvania, and he's just impatient. He'd like to try out the animal, so he pulls over to the side and untrailers the horse and puts the saddle on it. 
mounts up. A beautiful meadow out there. And he says, praise the Lord. And the house goes into a very comfortable walk. And he says, praise the Lord again. And goes into a nice spirited trot. And he says, praise the Lord again. And goes into a canter. Is that the next one? And uh, my daughters, who are horse fans, she's probably scold me because I may have this all garbled up. But I think that's the right order. And uh, anyway, as, he, as the meadow goes there, he, sees a, he just can't resist. He says, praise the Lord again. And the horse now goes into a full gallop, just like the wind. And he's really, really enjoying the power of this animal. But he also realizes a couple of things simultaneously. As the, at the end of this meadow, he realizes there's a cliff with about a 200-foot drop that he's racing toward. He also realizes that he forgot to ask the farmer how you stop the animal. So he does all the obvious things. He says, whoa, and he pulls on the reins, and he, he tries everything. This horse is just not to be stopped. And it's fleeing to the edge of this cliff when at the last minute he gets an insight and he says, Amen. And the horse plants his four hooves into the ground and about four inches from the edge of this cliff comes to a complete stop and the guy says, Oh, praise the Lord. <laughs> and I, I apologize for those of you who heard that story from me several times. I, I, uh, but I just love that story because, of course, it's a cute little story, but it also it sort of elliptically points out the danger in cliches or slogans, right? And you and I are victims of those kinds of things. And that's exactly what they did here. They, they, you know, the, the, Nathan and Byram and Cora, they, they grabbed a dandy here. They got a slogan that's hard to argue with. You take too much upon you. Seeing all the congregation is holy. You and I, in 10 minutes, could concatenate about 20 references from the Scripture to prove that the congregation of the children of Israel was holy. Right? And uh, see, the uh, congregation holy. Every one of them. Not only is the congregation holy, but then individually they're holy. They're set apart for the Lord's service. And the Lord is among them. I mean, what more could you ask? Now, they're obviously dealing in error. All great errors in the church are built around the germ of truth. All deviants, all the great heresies of the past are built around some understated, not quite complete expression that is defendable. Um, and you, we all need to beware of slogans. This got them in a lot of trouble. Uh, you hear people uh, take from the scripture, the kingdom of God is within you. Can't quarrel with that. It's out of the scripture. But what does it mean? Ah, yeah, it's another issue. And you can easily take some of these expressions and strip them of their denotative qualities and use them connotatively to great error. And uh, we see that in the political arena. The idea of being equal, equality before the law, that's great. But the whole movement or society of everything being equal so as to dismiss the concept of merit, aha, you've got a problem. We see that everywhere. The rights of groups versus the rights of the individual. Major issues in the field of ethics, the field of politics. Very glib cliches get us into trouble. And uh, that's exactly what now the, the Cora and these guys have really done a neat job. They've got a banner now that everybody can identify with, and that's the banner that uh, they hoist up here in verse 3. Now, I suppose you and I should do exactly what Moses did. When you get confronted with a, a banner of this kind, what did Moses do? When he heard it, he fell upon his face. 
Now, the presumption is, it's not clear from the text, but he fell on his face, he prayed, and we don't know how much time went by, but when he got up, he spoke from the Lord. So the Lord heard his prayer and responded. Uh, verse 5, and he spoke unto Korah and unto all his company, saying, Even tomorrow the Lord will show you who are his, and who is holy, and who will cause him to come near unto him. Even him whom he hath chosen will he cause to come near unto him. This is sort of reminiscent of what Elijah is going to do some years later, right? Okay, guys, uh, it's time to see who can cut the mustard, you know. You priests of Baal, take that hill and put your altars up, and we'll do ours here. And we'll have a, we'll have a contest. And, uh, and, and Elijah, of course, introduced the concept of the handicap. You know, he doused his with water and all this. Moses is is much simpler. He says, tomorrow we're going to have the Lord's going to show you. Uh, he's going to make his decisions. And he'll, even tomorrow the Lord will show who are his and who is holy and will cause him to come near unto him. And even him who he hath chosen will he cause to come near unto him. This do. Take you censers, Korah, and all his company. Now, they all had censers. It's going to be important later. There's at least 250 censers. Now, the problem is, is that you don't put fire before the Lord unless you're called to do that. Okay, we, we ran into a couple of guys earlier that uh, made strange fire. Um, Nadab and... Um, oh, I'm forgetting his name. I wrote... Uh, yeah, yes, right. And, and uh, um, they, they uh, paid for it dearly. So, but anyway, they, they bring the censers, he says. Take you, you censers, Korah, and all his company, and put fire therein, and put incense in them before the Lord tomorrow. And it shall be that the man whom the Lord doth choose, he shall be holy. Now, Moses uses their words against them. You take too much upon you, ye Levites. You see, that was what they were saying to Moses, right? Moses is a tribe of Levi, right? Earlier, so you take too much upon yourselves? You see, you know, in, in, the, in the, king, the polite King James, you may miss the repartee here, you see. Moses saying, okay, tomorrow the Lord's going to clarify this whole issue. But then, so they don't miss the point, you take too much upon you, you Levites. He's feeding them back the same jibe that they gave him up there in verse 3. And Moses said unto Korah, Here I pray you, ye sons of Levi, seemeth it but a small thing unto you that the God of Israel hath separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister unto them? In the language here, you should understand that the Levites were not considered part of the children of Israel. They were, of course, but they're really set apart from the congregation to be the Lord's own, to serve him specially. Not just the priests, but the whole tribe of Levi, the Levites. And that's, uh, um, that's what he's saying. See, the God of Israel hath separated you from the congregation of Israel. See, they weren't part of the congregation in that sense. To bring you near to himself to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord. That was a coveted place of honor. And incidentally, of the three families, the Kohathites, of which Korah is a part, were the most honored. To stand before the congregation to minister unto them. Verse 10. And he hath brought thee near unto to him, and all thy brethren, the sons of Levi, with thee, to seek ye the priesthood also. Now, haven't you got enough? Verse 11. For which cause both you and all thy company 
are gathered together against the Lord. Now here is an interesting backhand. And what is Aaron that ye murmur against him? Strange phrase, isn't it? Strange issue. Moses here is very candid. Who is Aaron? What does he mean by that? Well, lots of scholars are different. I think it's pretty simple myself. Aaron was very weak-willed. He's in the job because the Lord put him there. And because he is, you honor the position, not the man. But Moses making the point, what is Aaron? You know, that you murmur against him. What does he mean? Who is the guy that made the golden calf? You know, he leaves the scene for a while, and, and a mob takes over, and for them to make a golden calf is bad enough. But who is providing the craftsmanship? Aaron. You know, he's a milk toast. Well, that's what they want. Okay, he's making the golden calf. When Miriam, the elder sister, is rebelling against Moses, who's sort of with her? Aaron. Does he get leprosy like Miriam? No. Protected, I assume, by his office. But he's, um, you get the impression, I've got to be careful because I don't want to be um, incorrect, but you do get the impression he's sort of a non-entity personally. He's sort of a, a reed in the wind. A, 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 uh, um, you know, before he votes, he gets a Gallup poll to take in place of what the people want, you know. Um, I don't know what the antithesis of leadership is. Whatever it is, we got a lot of it in Washington, you know. Heard a great definition of Washington the other day. You know, it's about 12 square miles surrounded by reality. <laughs> but when I see Aaron, I think of a politician, not a leader. Hey, here's what we need. Here's where we go. Follow me. None of that. Take the pulse. What are they thinking? Whatever they're thinking, that's what I'm saying, you know. Um, I'm reminded of that famous scene in Hamlet, I think it was, where... Hamlet is putting them on, play, playing mad, and expresses a view, and of course they agree, and a few minutes later he expresses the opposite view, and they agree again. He's just making fool. They think he's nuts, but he's making fools of them. You know, it's, Shakespeare is a fun... Same kind of thing. It's reading the wind business. Anyway. Um, and what is Aaron that ye murmur against him? Verse 11. Okay. Um, I had some other notes, but I can't read them, so we'll keep moving. All right. <laughs> the Holy Spirit has intervened. I, whatever it was was obviously not very fruitful, so we'll keep going. Okay, now, at this point, you see, from verses 8 through 11, Moses is dealing with Korah, right? You see, uh, verse 8 says, Moses said to Korah, Here I pray you, sons of Levi. And he goes down here to verse 11. All that is directed to Korah, and it references the Levites and the priesthood thing. Verse 12, he now shifts gears. And Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, who said, now he, he sent summons. Hey guys, come up here, I want to talk to you now. I don't know if this is an hour later or two days later, whatever, but he now is calling uh, Dathan and Abiram. Sends them a summons. What's the response? We will not come up. That's a nice humble approach to the leader of the nation, isn't it? Verse 13. Is it a small thing that thou hast brought us up out of a land that floweth with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness except thou make 
thyself altogether a prince over us? I sort of visualize Edward G. Robinson in that line. I mean, just see verse 14. Moreover, thou hast not brought us into a land that floweth milk and honey, or given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will thou put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. You know, these guys are really a piece of work. Um, the Lord delivers them from slavery, bondage, miraculously, the most, with the most elaborate theatrics that God himself engineered for the purpose of being theatrical. He says so, in effect. Okay. And then he also brings them to the land, and they choose not to go in. Well, gee, there's big guys there and stuff. Uh, they're 10 feet tall. Well, I don't know how tall the Lord is, but I think it's more than 10 feet. Anyway, the point is, they don't want to go in the land. Well, okay. Now they're griping because you took us out of the land of slavery. And by the way, you know, no hope for these guys. Now, verse 15. Moses was very angry. Didn't say Moses was angry. Moses was very angry. Don't misunderstand Moses. Moses. Moses is not like Aaron. Moses is a tough guy. A lot of the background that you may have gotten from the movie Ten Commandments is valid. It comes from other extra-biblical sources, but there's a lot of evidence to indicate that Moses was being groomed to be Pharaoh. He was adopted, the adopted son, but he, in fact, inspired jealousy from his brother, his, his, the, the, the uh, pretender, if you will. Uh, he was trained militarily. He was trained in all the crafts and wisdom of the Egyptians. We learn from the scripture. So that, that, that perception isn't something that Hollywood fabricated. DeMille, when he made that movie, I'm mentioning that frame of reference because I assume it's a comedy. We've all seen that. There's a lot there that may seem fanciful. Not so. He did a lot of research. He prided himself in trying to do the research. Um, uh, Moses was a, a, a strong, macho leader. He also had a temper. He killed a guy, manslaughter, buried him in the sand, split. That's, uh, I mean, uh, this guy is not uh, namby pamby. He's a he's a take you know a ready fire aim kind of guy. Okay? Now, you caught that, huh? Okay. And Moses was very angry and said to the Lord, "Respect not thou their offering." <laughs> well, this guy, he's going to be charged. He's a mediator between God and men. You know, he talks. Tells men what God said. He tells the Lord, gives him a suggestion here. <laughs> Respect not their offering. I have not taken one ass from them, neither have I hurt one of them. Now this word hurt, by the way, is an interesting word for those of you that are students of Revelation. Hurt not the oil and the wine. You remember that in, the, in Revelation chapter 6, verse 6? That expression means not to take. You don't think of hurting wine by drinking wine or hurting. He, see, he did not hurt the ass. It means he injured it. He means he didn't take one. And I mention that only here for those of you that are students of Revelation. That's a passage in there where it speaks of famine. And one of the reasons you have to understand what, when, it's, when he says, hurt thou not the oil and the wine, what he really means by that. And one of your references here is, is from the book of Numbers. Incidental footnote for those of you that are in that. But uh, moving on. And Moses said unto Korah, <laughs> Moses is through speaking to the Lord. Now he turns to Korah. Be thou and all thy company before the Lord, thou and they and Aaron, tomorrow. And take every man his censer, and put incense in them, and bring them, bring ye before the Lord every man his censer. 250 censers. 
Thou also, and Aaron, each of you his censer. And he took every man his censer, and put fire in them, and laid incense thereon, and stood in the door of the tabernacle of the congregation with Moses and Aaron. And Korah gathered all the congregation against them unto the door of the, con- the tabernacle of the congregation. And the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the congregation. Brief little sentence. Staggering its implications. The glory of the Lord usually appeared to Moses privately. Here is one of those rare occasions where the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the congregation. If I was a movie producer, I wouldn't have the foggiest notion of how to dramatize that adequately. That's a grabber. Got their attention, but he's not through yet. Verse 20, The Lord spoke unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. That gives a whole new sensitivity to the idea of being separate, right? (laughs) Isn't that exactly what God calls us to do? Be ye separate? Why? Because he's going to consume the rest. Interesting, isn't it? Anyway, I got off the subject. Maybe I didn't. Separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell upon their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin? And wilt thou be angry with all the congregation? One man? I thought there was 250 of these rabble-rousers. When the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the congregation, saying, Get you up from about the tabernacle. By that he means the tents. Don't confuse. Tabernacle and tent is a not, not the tabernacle, but from the tabernacle of Korah, Dathan, Abiram. In other words, get away from their tents, is what he's saying. Moses rose up and went unto Dathan, Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke unto the congregation, saying, Depart, I pray you, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest ye be consumed in all their sins. I really wonder what Korah, Dathan, Abiram were thinking about this point. You know, is Moses just getting theatrical here? Come on, who is this really, huh? So they got up from the tabernacle of Korah, Dathan, and Byram on every side. And Dathan and Byram came out and stood in the door of their tents with their wives and their sons and their little children. And Moses said, Hereby ye shall know that the Lord hath sent me to do all these works. For I have not done them of mine own hand. If these men die the common death of all men, or if they be visited after the visitation of all men, then the Lord hath not sent me. But if the Lord make a new thing, and the earth open her mouth and swallow them up, and with all that pertains to them, and they go down alive into Sheol. Then you shall understand that these men have provoked the Lord. (laughs) That's the understatement of the evening, I think, right? (laughs) Really find myself trying to visualize that scene. Verse 31, And it came to pass, as he had finished speaking all these words, that the ground split open 
that was under them. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up, and their houses, and all the men that it pertained to Korah, and all their goods. They and all that it pertained to them went down alive into Sheol. And the earth closed upon them, and they perished from among the congregation. And all Israel that was round about them fled at the cry of them, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us up also. And there came out a fire from the Lord and consumed the 250 men that offered incense. They want to offer fire? The Lord gave them some fire. They didn't, get, they didn't fall in the earth. See, that was, by the way, it's Korah, Dathan, and Byron. But by the way, for reasons that aren't clear here, the sons of Korah did not perish. They're referred to later in many places throughout the Scripture. Strangely enough, the sons of Korah are yet referred to. It's the children of Dathan and Abiram that get swallowed. So, um, but it's interesting that the, uh, they get swallowed up by the earth, alive into Sheol. And I have no insight what that means either. Is it a figure of speech that they get swallowed up by the earthquake splitting up, they got down there and when it closed up, they went down alive, but they died when it closed up? That's probably what it means. Or are they in some weird special category in Sheol? I have no idea. Being kind of a mystic, I sort of play with that idea. But I don't know. Clearly, though, it was a, a dramatic demonstration to the, uh, ch to the children of Israel that when God appoints somebody, He appoints somebody. And if you want to offer fire or incense, you are chosen to do that. You don't presume it on yourself. Okay? And then the fire comes down and consumes two... You know, 250 princes get consumed by fire. Now what's strange about this, you would think, wouldn't you, that that ought to put an end to this nonsense. First we have Miriam's leprosy that says, hey, the God, God is saying, you know, Moses is boss, let's knock this off, right? That didn't make an impression. we got Korah and Nathan and Abiram, and we have a, a grandstand play analogous to what happened at Carmel by Elijah years later where, <laughs> you know, he calls his shots. There are any pool players here, you know what I mean, okay? Um, you would think that would end it. Wouldn't you think that that would sort of bring order in the camp as to who's running things? Uh-uh. There's an expression among, you know, two Jews, three opinions, right? Watch what happens in verse 36. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, that he take up the censers out of the burning, and uh, scatter thou the fire yonder, for they are hallowed. In other words, the censers themselves are now hallowed. Even though they were misused, they themselves can't be used for ordinary things. They're hallowed. So the Lord's going to convert them into a practical use for the tabernacle. Um, the censers of these sinners against their own souls, let them... Make them broad plates for a covering of the altar, and they offered them there before the Lord, before they are hallowed, and they shall be a sign unto the children of Israel. And Eleazar the priest took the bronze censers wherewith they were, uh, uh, they that had burnt had offered. <laughs> they that were burnt had offered. <laughs> it's hard to say. You follow the point? In other words, it wasn't the offerer became the offering. Okay. Um, and they were made broad plates for a covering of the altar to be a memorial unto the children of Israel, that no stranger who is not of the seed of Aaron come near to offer incense before the Lord, 
that he be not as Korah or as his company, as the Lord said to him by the hand of Moses. But on the next day, get this, on the next day all the children of Israel, all the congregation of the children of Israel, murmured against Moses and against Aaron, saying, Ye have killed the people of the Lord. <laughs> I can't imagine these turkeys. And I can't, can you imagine God the Father, the creator of the universe, who's gone through all this trouble to make them special, separate. Can you imagine his frustration? The perversity of these people. It's ridiculous, isn't it? Is our perversity any different? Not really. It may manifest itself in slightly different ways, but we need to read cautiously because there uh, go ourselves. But on the next day, all the children of Israel uh, murmured against Moses, saying, Ye have killed the people of the Lord. It came to pass when the congregation was gathered against Moses and Aaron, against Aaron, that they looked toward the tabernacle of the congregation. Behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. You know, you'd think they'd get the message. I have no idea what their hypothesis was on how Moses controlled this cloud and this glory. This manifest, I don't know what they thought his physics was to pull this off. I have no idea what their geodetic presumptions were that he could, upon command, make the earth swallow up his enemies and close up. You know, that's, that's a neat trick if you can work it out. But now this, this cloud comes again, and the glory of the Lord appeared. And Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of the congregation. The Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Get you up from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a, as in a moment. That has a ring of familiarity to it, doesn't it? And they fell upon their faces. And Moses and Aaron, uh, and Moses said unto Aaron, Take a censer and put a fire therein from off the altar and put on incense and go quickly unto the congregation and make an atonement for them. For there is wrath gone out from the Lord. The plague is begun. And Aaron took as Moses commanded and ran into the midst of the congregation. Behold, the plague was begun among the people and he put on incense and made an atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living and the plague was stayed. Now they who died in the plague were fourteen. 15,700 beside them who had died about the matter of Korah. There's about 15,000 you count the 250 plus odds and ends, huh? Altogether. But 14,700 here. Aaron returned to Moses under the door of the congregation and uh, the door of the tabernacle of the congregation and the plague was stayed. Interesting. Moses senses that the Lord's serious, he's going to start, but he also understands the concept of the Lord's grace and mercy. So he dispatches Aaron to officiate, and indeed um, catches it at the starting gate, if you will. Yes, 14,700 died out of 600,000 plus, more or less. We're going to get into those numbers again because we numbered it early in the book and we're going to number it when they enter the land and the, diff the, the total sum is about the same. But we'll also get some insights as to what tribes were involved in which things because of some huge attritions and so forth. Tough time. Tough time. Now we can look at this kind of amusingly because it is graphic. It's sort of fascinating to see this personal dialogue between God and Moses and and they're dealing with this rebellion. It's very colorful. It's amusing. And yet it, 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 it is put here so that we can get some insights. And what are the insights? I guess, first of all, God is serious. 
God takes himself very seriously. He's entitled. And we need to recognize that. We get so glib with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and, and so many of the incredibly uh, uh, treasures of the New Testament. We shouldn't lose sight of the fact that God is God. And he's serious. And he has very specific ways that he wants to be dealt with in terms of worship, in terms of his ordinances, and so forth. And, and he takes these things seriously. This permissiveness that we indulge in, or we're allowed to indulge in, in the New Testament should not blind us to the reality of that God is God, and he has uh, issues that are, uh, are uh, uh, at stake. It's something else we should, uh, another uh, item from chapter 16. You'll notice in here, nowhere did Moses defend himself or his office. It wasn't Moses' honor at stake. It was God's. Moses is an interesting guy. He's going to blow it later. He's going to make some mistakes. Don't misunderstand me. He's very human. But boy, he understands one thing, that God will deal with his own honor. And, and uh, uh, Moses does not have to defend himself. If God appointed him, God will ratify his appointment. And uh, I think there's much there that we can... Uh, 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 take on. I did mention that Korah's sons did not perish because we find them in Psalm 42, 44, 84, 85, 87. 80. He shows up in the Psalms. The sons of Korah show up frequently in there. Um, okay. Now, <laughs> we're still not over. <laughs> we get to this issue of Aaron's rod. Bizarre little incident, but uh, Aaron's rod. Verse, chapter 17, verse 1, And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and take every one of them a rod, according to the house of their fathers, and all the princes according to the house of their fathers, twelve rods. Write thou in every man's name upon the rod, and thou shalt write Aaron's name upon the rod of Levi. For one rod shall be for the head of the house of their fathers. There are thirteen rods here. Staffs, like a big, tall walking stick. Okay? There's one for each tribe. In several places, by the way, from the Hebrew language, the word for tribe and staff is the same word. There's, in fact, a couple of choices they can use. And if you get into the structure of this, you, there is a, an equation, if you will, between the rod and the tribe. There are signs and so forth. Um, we find this in Genesis. Um, uh, the, the, the rod is a, a sign of the ruler of that tribe. We see it in Genesis 38 and 49 and... and, uh, and uh, uh, remember, the, the scepter shall not depart from Judah till shadow come with the scepters, that rod, that staff, that symbol of authority. Eh? Um, now there's 13 staffs, there's 12 tribes plus Levi. That's why the language is here, so there's no ambiguity. Are there 12 or 13? It says so. There's, you know, there's 12 rods, and then also Aaron's name is on the one for, for the tribe of Levi. Verse 4, And thou shalt lay them up in the tabernacle of the congregation before the testimony, where I will meet with you. Who's speaking? God. He made an appointment, made a date. Bring these rods in, 13 of them, into the tabernacle, huh? Now, what most people believe, there's all kinds of scholastic debate exactly where they put them. The presumption is they're not in the Holy, pla in the holy of Holies, in the Holy Place in front of the veil before the Holy Place. The Holy of Holies, I mean. But that's not a big issue anyway. They're in the tabernacle. And it shall come to, verse 5, it shall come to pass that the man's rod whom I shall choose shall blossom. And I will make to cease from me the murmurings of the children of Israel, 
whereby they murmur against you. But God is seeking to end this nonsense as to who God has chosen. Now, we've had a few <laughs> examples earlier. Earth opening up, fire from heaven. I mean, he's got one last thing he's going to do to, 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 to uh, um, ratify, to, to, to uh, demonstrate who the leader should be. And here we're talking about the leadership of the priesthood. Verse 6, Moses spoke unto the children of Israel, and every one of their princes gave him a rod apiece, for each prince one, according to their father's houses, even twelve rods. And the rod of Aaron was among the rods. Now the word prince is a, there were 250 princes total, but there's twelve top guys, twelve tribes, a leader for each tribe. Twelve rods, plus Aaron's, thirteen rods altogether. And Moses laid up the rods before the Lord in the tabernacle of witness. And it came to pass that on the next day, Moses went into the tabernacle of witness. And behold, the rod of Aaron for the house of Levi was budded and brought forth buds and bloomed blossoms and yielded almonds. That's kind of neat. I don't know how you do that. Incidentally, there's some evidence to believe that all 12, uh, 13 rods were from the almond trees. For some reason, there's some scholastic reason to believe that was an actual one they would use for a rod. Something you might find interesting, you need to know a little bit about almonds to really appreciate the story. The almond tree is the first tree that demonstrates the end of winter. Winter's winter, and then as you feel it now, you know, I, we were up in the mountains, and we have a second home is up in Big Bear, and you can just feel the snow's melted, the lake's thawed, and you just, you just, it's a little early. I think there'll be another cold snap yet coming, but you just can feel that spring is trying to happen. You know, the vernal equinox is still a few um, weeks away, but it's, you can feel spring is in the air, right? It's the first tree that would declare the end of winter is the almond tree. And it would um, burst forth with a show of white, snow-white blossoms. That was a, and, 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 give, and it was also the first to yield fruit. You know what the Hebrew word for almonds is? It's a word, when you translate it, it means awake. Awake. Isn't that pretty? Yeah. So, this is the Lord's way of saying to Israel, wake up, you guys. It's interesting that it budded. It did all three things. It budded, brought, brought forth blossoms, and yielded fruit overnight. Now, um, it's also interesting, this piece of background, if you may, may recall from the first chapter of the book of Jeremiah, when we studied Jeremiah, it was the rod of an almond tree that was used as a, as a symbol uh, uh, to, uh, uh, to Jeremiah of the vigilant haste with which God's purposes were to be developed and, and, uh, and uh, matured. The almond, uh, uh, a, rod, a rod from an almond tree was used there too. Now there again, it may be a throwback, semantically, back to Jeremiah, we know, of course, of Aaron. So there's a tie together, if you will. Okay. Now it's also interesting that the rod, severed from the living tree, has no natural way to bear fruit. This is supernatural. You and I are in the same boat. There's no way that we can bear fruit in the natural. It's by the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly the message God is giving 
them in terms of the priesthood. The way it bears fruit is by the supernatural agency of God's Spirit, not by any, um, um, you know, uh, other means. Came to pass that on the next day, Moses went to the tabernacle of witness, and behold, the rod of Aaron for the house of Levi was budded and brought forth buds and bloom blossoms and yielded almonds. It actually bore fruit. That's what a priesthood, I guess, is supposed to do. Verse 9, And Moses brought out all the rods before the Lord unto the children of Israel. And they looked, and every man his rod. No trickery here. Aaron had signed his, remember? And the Lord said unto Moses, Bring Aaron's rod again before the testimony to be kept for a sign against the rebels. And thou shalt quite take away their murmurings from me, that they die not. And Moses did so. And the Lord commanded, as the Lord commanded him, so did he. And the children of Israel spoke unto Moses, saying, Behold, we die, we perish, we all perish. <laughs> These people. Whosoever cometh anywhere near the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. Shall we be consumed with dying? Well, that's what the 38 years in the wilderness are all about. Dying. Maybe not the way some of these, I'm not suggesting they were to die the way uh, Abiram and Dathan and Korah did, but uh, uh, grim period. Grim period. I don't think we'll um, uh, jump into chapter 18 until next time. Um, but um, we'll get into the red heifer, and uh, the uh, and 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 we're going to find some. You know, next time will be an interesting time, and we'll also get into the uh, the brazen serpent and all of that. Should be a, a, a fun a fun session. Um, Numbers, the book of arrested progress. We read about Israel's arrested progress. They could have, what they, what they could have done in a few days, they took them 40 years of marking time, treading water, if you will. What about you and I? Are we making spiritual progress? We're called in a little different way than obviously the nation Israel was, but are we um, relegated to a period of arrested progress because of our lack of faith? Are there challenges the Lord has for you and I that lie right before us that we can't appropriate to ourselves for lack of not just faith, but an audacious faith, the audacity to reach out and take Him at His word? We glibly read the numbers and, and the quaint quaintness of, of that period and the absolutely bizarre behavior and yet we stand back, and if we look at ourselves honestly, we're no different. The instruments may be different. The cha specific challenges are a little different. They had a calling. They had something they were supposed to do. So do you and I. Much of that calling that you and I have is in common. Also, some of that calling you and I have is very specific. There are things that the Lord is, has, is, and will call you to do that he hasn't called me to do. He has a ministry for everyone in this room. If you're a servant to the Lord Jesus Christ, then he has a service for you. Most important service is simply one of faith and of, of, of taking him at his word and growing in grace and the knowledge of him. But he also has some specific things he would have of each and every one of us. 
and the distinct and the different. And the great discovery in the Christian walk is to discover those things that he would have you do, and for whatever it is, he'll equip you for it. In fact, that's one of the clues to what he'll have you do, is to understand what unique supernatural gifts the Lord has given you. Because each, each one of us that are in Jesus Christ is the beneficiary of some supernatural gifts, and they're different. And there's a clue as to what's lying ahead. Because he doesn't give them needlessly. <laughs> if you have the gift of courage, that means it's going to be needed. If you have whatever gifts they are, uh, they fit. Because he, he, he knows the end from the beginning. But what do you have to do? Same thing that the nation of Israel did. You have, to, you have to appropriate to yourself. You have to reread that chapter 14. Because there may be giants in the land. There may be opponents that are 10 feet tall. Or at least seem that way. The Lord will challenge you. Just as he did the nation of Israel. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Romans 15.4 says, Whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. Yours and mine. Not just Israel. Not just Jewish, those of Jewish background. This strange history of this nation was written down so that you and I, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. For our hearts. Father, we just praise you that you indeed are a patient and merciful and graceful God. We thank you, Father, for this instruction. We thank you, Father, for revealing yourself to us in such dramatic personal terms. We thank you, too, Father, that in the person of Jesus Christ, that you've taken care of all our frailties and shortcomings and inadequacies, that in him we have all that we need to be, before you. We thank you, Father, for this instruction. We would ask you, Father, to increase in us an appetite for the things that are holy, an appetite for the things that you've revealed. We pray, Father, you give us no peace until indeed we rest in you. We would ask you, Father, just to strengthen us. We also ask, Father, for wisdom. You've promised that if any of us lack wisdom, that you would give it abundantly. We ask for wisdom, Father, you might Help us take from these things and apply those things which are appropriate to our own walk. That you would increase in each and every one of us a sensitivity to that peculiar calling that you have for each and every one of us. Father, we ask all these things that indeed, through the power of your word, we might grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. In whose name we pray.